Thank you. Well, this morning, I, I do want to recognize um, our, the, the, the legacy and the power that God has done through this church. We do have, uh, there, there have been three pastors of this church. I'm the third, and the other two are here today, so that's a significant thing. Um, I'd like to, I know they don't want me to do this, but I'd like to recognize them. If you guys could just stand, and we just want to say thank you for your faithfulness and your service. Talk about no pressure on the preaching. Uh, as we approach what is arguably the most theologically technical and difficult passage in the New Testament, I've opted to have uh, Dallas and, and um, Daryl teach this morning. Um, <laughs> just kidding. We are in Hebrews chapter 6, so if you'd grab your Bibles, please, and we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 10 this morning. And as you turn there, if you would stand as we read God's word together. Hebrews chapter 6. Coming off the proclamation of the high priestly office of Jesus Christ, into this exhortation that Paul gives for us to not be those who can only partake of milk, but of solid food. And here he's actually going to continue to divulge what that means, what that looks like, and its fulfillment in Christ. We're going to be reading verses 1 through 10. I will read the odd-numbered verses, if you would read together on the even-numbered verses. Excuse me, 1 through 9. Therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and faith, Toward God. And this we will do if God permits. And have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. For the earth which drinks in the rain that often comes upon it and bears herbs useful for those by whom it is cultivated receives blessing from God. But, beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you. Yes, things that accompany salvation, though we speak in this manner. And all God's people said, amen. amen. That's as far as we'll go today. You can be seated. Have you ever been asked a difficult question that you didn't really want to answer? I looked up WikiHow's top five ways to answer a question you don't want to answer. Number one, don't answer. <laughs> Number two, flip the question back to the person asking. Number three, delay, delay. 
Number four, answer gradually. Number five, refuse to answer. Uh, and, And number six, use humor. We'll see how many tactics I employ to the question today. Because if you've ever been posed with this question or asked this question, Josh, can you lose your salvation? There's a good chance that that question has its roots somewhere in Hebrews chapter 6, where there's an implication of dire consequence. There is apparently a tipping point beyond return that is expressed. And to whom is it expressed? That's a big question in this passage. To whom is Paul talking about when he suggests that there is a point of the scale that if you cross it, There's no human possibility of coming back from it. Is this passage designed to scare us, to walk on eggshells, so to speak, as it were, with God about whether or not we're saved and whether or not we're good enough or whether or not we are on the fence? We're going to explore those questions today. I will say that the next couple verses have been the source of numerous theological divisions even within the church. Different camps have parted in their theology over this verse. Now, I don't want to claim this morning that I have, by any means, a perfect revelation or understanding of this passage. I do have some convictions that I'll share with you today, and hopefully they'll be helpful. I'll dive into the multiple views a little bit later. But I want to put your minds at ease before we even dive into the who and the what and the how. And that is, at the end of the day, in my opinion... The question of, are these Christians who lose their salvation, are these people who are faking Christianity, is less important than the ultimate application, which fits for both narratives, which is simply this. If you want to be saved, you have to go through Jesus and Jesus alone, period. Stay with Jesus, and you'll be okay. That's, okay, goodbye, that's it. That's it. No, it is important for us to dive in deep. And understand exactly where Paul is coming from. And so Paul addresses, has been addressing, a Hebrew audience. And so we have to understand that in this Hebrew audience, there has been temptation for them to cling or to revert back to the systems of the Old Covenant the law, the sacrificial system. And so Paul, I believe who wrote this book, is making a case-by-case argument why Jesus is the fulfillment. He is the completion of everything the law pointed to. Well, we have, they would say, the prophets. That's all we need, the prophets. And, and, And Paul would say, well, at one time God spoke through the prophets, but now he has chosen to speak through his son, Jesus Christ, the fulfillment of the law and prophets. Well, well, we have... We have the angels who have mediated this covenant between God and man. And he says, yeah, but to which of the angels has he ever said, today you are my son, today I have begotten you. No, Jesus isn't another created being equal to the angels. He is the creator of the angels himself. This is what makes him better. Well, we have Moses, the initiator of the law, the one called to establish the covenant of sacrifice between God and man. Yeah, but Moses never was able to fully lead God's people into his promised rest. Jesus is the better Moses, the one through the, through the new covenant who leads us into God's better and eternal rest. Well, we have the high priest and the sacrifices. That's all we need. Last week, we discovered 
Well, no, the high priest is limited because he himself is a man. He has to make sacrifices not only for the people but for himself. And Jesus is the better high priest in that he fulfilled every righteous requirement of God. And being fully man, he empathizes with us. And being fully God, he can stand before the presence of the Father and advocate on our behalf He is the high priest who has entered into the heavenly place. Not only is he the Messiah king, not only is he the high priest, he is also the sacrifice itself. Not that of a lamb or an animal, but the perfect blood of Jesus that takes away sins. And so the case has been mounting. And all his audience have been privy to the reality that Jesus is everything they'd hoped for, everything they were looking towards, To embrace him fully and completely would complete them as Jews and as humans. But apparently there were some who were on the fence, so to speak, regarding their commitment to Christ and Christ alone being sufficient to bring peace with God and forgiveness of sin and eternal life. And so there are four things that I believe the passage teaches us about these people that we want to take note of today. If you're taking notes, jot this this first one down. The first verses one through three show us that this group of people, whomever Paul is talking to, is that they never truly move from religion to Christ. They never truly move from religion to Christ. Again, verses one through three. Paul says, therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ... Let us go on to perfection, or the other word there, it could be completion, or full maturity. Not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works, and faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptisms and laying on of hands, of the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment, and this we will do if God permits. So here, here he commands the audience to go on to completion, or perfection. And in the context of Jews who were on the fence about Jesus, what we can look at this as saying is Paul lays out these categories of theology. He actually, in the language, he pairs them in in groups of two, okay? We have what he calls the repentance and faith. He calls these the elementary principles, okay? The foundational elements of faith in God and Christ. We have our response to God, repentance and faith. We have our interaction with, with, within the context of being God's people. Baptisms or washings, the word is. Ceremonial cleansings. And laying on of hands. We have the subjects of eschatology and our eternal outcome, which is the judgment of God and the resurrection from the dead. And here's what I want you to notice about these categories, these theological categories. Not a trick question. Are these categories and themes unique to Christianity? Anyone? I know no one wants to give the wrong answer. The answer is no, they're not. In fact, for any Jew who has raised a Jew in their home, in their synagogue, by their rabbis, they would have been taught all the Old Testament foundational principles of repentance and faith toward gods, of washings and laying on of hands, of resurrection and the final judgment. These are all principles established in the Old Testament. And so what Paul is exhorting here to the Hebrew believers who are on the fence about Jesus is he's saying 
It's time to become, become completed Jews. It's time to recognize that all of the old foundational elements of the law and the old covenant, which are valuable and important, they were all designed to point you to the ultimate fulfillment of it all, which is Jesus. Everything makes sense when you see it through the lens of Christ. Not only that, but you move beyond the elementary principles of it to the actual meanings of it. You go deeper when you see the old covenant through Jesus. The old covenant speaks in sometimes shadows and images where Jesus is the fulfillment of that shadow or that image. He is the complete fullness of the Godhead bodily. And so here, he's really encouraging, go, let go of your attachment and your dependence upon your understanding of the old covenant and let it lead you to completeness which is fully embracing Jesus Christ as the Savior, as the Messiah, as the King, as the High Priest, as the sacrifice. This is what he's suggesting. Nothing in that list is uniquely Christian. But the, the problem with those whom Paul was referring was not that they lacked a theological basis for Jesus, but they chose not to move on beyond their religious commitment to the truth of Christ. The word here when he says, let us go on, it's a specific terms that doesn't, it doesn't mean abandon, completely abandon the former, but let it, let it lead you. Let it be a stepping stool to where you need to go. Don't land there. Don't stop there. Don't stay there. But move on to Christ. He put it like this to the Galatians in Galatians chapter 3, verses 23 through 25. Paul says, But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. Therefore the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under the tutor. So they, the picture there is the law was good because it, it kept us in check. It guarded us. It protected us until the promised Messiah came. But once the promised Messiah came, the law was designed not to keep us in prison, but to point us to freedom so that we can move beyond the old and embrace what Jesus brings through his new and better covenant. You guys following me? So here's what he's saying. Move beyond your religion. Now, while this is uniquely Jewish, and it would have made much more sense to the Jewish audience than maybe it does to us, I think there is a valid exhortation here. Because we still live in a culture and in a world where humans seek to replace Jesus with religion. And no, it's not just in what we might call a, a cultish groups. It's not just uh, in the Mormon church or the Jehovah's Witnesses. And maybe even some of our, our Catholic friends have, have partaken just in religion. I'm talking about in every church across the United States. There are people who think that going to church and being on the church membership role and my parents were Christians and I live in a Christian community, and I'm a good moral person, means that I am good with God. And Paul is warning us that it doesn't mean you're good with God. It might mean you're good. You're, you know, it might mean you're a decent person. It might mean that you enjoy religious affiliation. It might mean that you even have some sort of spiritual desire within your heart. 
But religion itself has no bearing in making you right or justified with God. That comes through the person of Jesus and what he accomplished on our behalf at the cross and through his resurrection. Jesus alone saves. And many times I think the desire to want to remain in an ordered religious system that's comfortable can actually keep people from experiencing and fully committing themselves by faith to Jesus. They want a little bit of Jesus, don't get me wrong. They just want the part of Jesus that can fit within the rest of the, their, their mold, their paradigm of what they want. It's Jesus plus my spiritual journey. It's Jesus plus my meditation. It's Jesus plus my, uh, my, my membership or my, my good works or whatever it might be, right? You're, salvation, Paul is going to make it very clear, is, is Jesus plus nothing. It's Jesus alone. He's saying move beyond being attached and chained by the regulations and the rules and trying to keep the law and trying to earn favor with God. When the fulfillment has come, he's done it for you. And so they don't move from their religion to Christ. The second characteristic of the audiences that we find is that they are neglecting the truth that is right in front of their eyes. They are neglecting the truth that is right in front of their eyes. Verses four through six, he continues, for it is impossible, circle that word, I'm gonna talk about it in a minute. It is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away to renew them again to repentance since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. Now, there are, are, are several areas here, but I'm going to work from the back forward. First, I want to define this word impossible. He said, if we take out the mandatory clause there, it's, he, the, the verse would read, it's impossible for them to be renewed again to repentance. And then the middle of the verse defines who we're talking about, okay? And so, the word impossible is very important because it literally means humanly impossible. We, we get this from the context of the word. It's used in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 18, where the author says, it's impossible for God to lie. Right? There's, there's, a, there's, a no, there's no way that there, that, that's happening. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, we see the word again, without faith, it is impossible to please God. So in the context of this passage, impossible doesn't mean highly unlikely. Sorry. It means uh, it's not happening. Now, I want to balance this out with a thought. You might remember when Jesus' disciples challenged Jesus' teaching about the rich entering into heaven. You know, it's harder for the, the rich to enter into heaven than the camel to go through the eye of the needle, and his disciples are aghast. Well, then who, who can be saved? And what did Jesus say? What is impossible with man is possible with God. So I'm not going to completely erase the possibility of God to do anything in this circumstance. But the weight here is there is an audience listening to Paul's words who is on a tipping point of entering into an unrecoverable position with God. And that's a bit frightening. That's a bit sobering. So 
as we look at this passage, let's look at the who. Uh, I'm sorry, let's look at the what before we look at the who. The word here for in verse 6, if they fall away, it's a word that means to slip aside or to fall, aside, uh, uh, um, fall beside another. It's the idea of walking a road or a path and you're, you're following along with someone and then you start to get distracted and by, pretty soon you are off the path, you are on the side of the road without the ability to get back up and move in the right direction. And what I believe he's referring to here in the context is, is well, to slip, slip aside into what? Well, to slip back into the sacrificial system of Judaism that would ultimately mock or neglect the sacrifice that Christ made, which is the better sacrifice. Now, I want to take one, one side chain here because a lot of people read a verse like this and they start to get nervous. Josh, did I, I, I can't tell you how many times I've heard this question. Josh, have I committed the unpardonable sin? You know, I messed up, I made a mistake, I said something, I did something, I've been struggling, you know, in and out of this, of this sin that I'm battling against, and I read verses like this, and it's like, has, has God just said it's impossible? I, I give up on you, you're not, you're not gonna make it, you're not good enough, right? That is a, a battle that a lot of Christians face in their struggle against sin. Well, is God going to abandon me because I did A, B, C, or D? And I want to make something clear that in the context of this passage, it is n- it's not talking about that at all. Zero. The reality of the matter is, if Jesus Christ didn't come to die to save sinners and sanctify sinners who would continue to struggle with sin until the very end where he would make them complete and perfect for his kingdom, then we're all in trouble. <laughs> We are, all in, 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 we are all in very deep over our heads with our sin. You see, the, the, the passage here is not talking about uh, can you sin your way out of salvation? I believe that the biblical answer to that question is absolutely not. It is not your righteous works that got you salvation. It is not your wicked works that will take it away from you. And if you hear that today, and you, I'm sorry, this is, can I use this mic, Jeremy? If you heard me suggest that, and you're like, phew, what a relief. I can just continue down the path that I'm on, and then I've got Jesus to take care of it all. My friend, I I want to challenge that thought if you thought that. How can you say that you met a holy God, that you saw the how deeply Filthy and stained, your sin has made you in his presence. 
that you recognize that Jesus on the cross is the fullest expression of God's love for a sinner who doesn't deserve grace and mercy or eternal life, but deserves nothing but judgment. How can you look at all of that and make a decision to receive that grace into your life and then have such a cavalier attitude towards sin? If your attitude is, well, since there's grace, I can continue to sin, then my friend, I would challenge you to ask whether or not you've actually encountered the grace of God. Because there's a good, good chance, there's a good possibility that you have not yet met Jesus in the way that he has become that sacrifice and that savior for you. But as far as those who struggle against sin and battle against sin and wrestle against sin and repent of sin and confess their sin, my friend, you need to be encouraged today that Jesus has you covered from beginning to end. The Bible says in Ephesians that you have been sealed with the Holy Spirit of God. The Bible tells us that whatever God has begin, begun in you, he is faithful to complete until the day of Christ Jesus. I want someone to walk away from this place this morning with greater confidence in the sacrifice of Christ that he's got you in the palm of his hand. So then, Josh, what is the passage talking about? If it's not talking about some sort of moral sin or failure or struggle, removing a person from being able to come to repentance and come to Christ, what is it? I believe the answer is found in John chapter 6, verses 28 through 29, when Jesus was asked, well, what should we do to do the works of God? In other words, what can we do to earn God's favor? And Jesus answers them and says, this is the work of God, that you believe in him who he sent. If you want to do the work, so to speak, of salvation, you trust fully in Jesus. That is it. I believe the only legitimate interpretation of this passage is that we're referring to a person who has literally walked away from Jesus as their only source of hope and salvation. They've abandoned their confession in Christ. They refuse the blood of his covenant for their sin, and they've walked away from the only sacrifice that has the power to forgive them. That is what he's talking about when he says, fall away or slip aside, is to reject Christ as a sacrifice for sin. I love how William Lane puts it, and he breaks down the Greek structure, and he commentates, what is visualized by the expressions in verse 6 is every form of departure from faith in the crucified Son of God. This could entail a return to Jewish convictions and practices, as well as a public denial of faith in Christ under the pressure from a magistrate or hostile crowd, simply for personal advantage. So the rejection of faith in Christ is what we're talking about. We need to make it clear that uh, salvation is by grace alone through faith alone. There is nothing you can add to it or take away from it. There's a passage in Luke chapter 4 I'd like to just take a minute to unfold. In fact, if you'd like to turn there, you may. Luke chapter 4, verse 24. Jesus makes an interesting observation. He 
He said, Assuredly, I say to you, no prophet is accepted in his own country, speaking of himself. But I tell you truly, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heaven was shut up three years and six months, and there was a great famine throughout all the land. But to none of them was Elijah sent except to Zarephath in the region of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And many lepers were in Israel at the time Elijah the prophet came, and none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. So all those in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath. Joshua does that have to do anything. Check it out. Jesus talks about two examples in the Old Testament that God brought his healing and provision and, quote, salvation to. One was a widow in Zarephath, and one was uh, the, the Syrian general, Naaman. You might remember his story. When he went to Elijah, and he had leprosy, and he had to wash in the Jordan River, and he was insulted, but God healed him. And afterward, he said, I'm, I don't know this God, but he's my God. If I have to go into the temple of other gods, I'll just be thinking about this God only, right? But what, what does a widow and Naaman have in common? Well, they are both not Jews, Jewish. They're both not Israelites. They are both away from temple worship. None of them have access to the word of God, the Torah. None of them know the law. None of them have any pedigree. They're not children of Abraham. In other words, these two characters come to God with what kind of merit? Zero. None. And God pours his grace out on them. They don't know theology. They don't know doctrine. They don't know. They, all they know is there's a God in heaven who's true, and I am going to be loyal to him alone. Which is why I think an important question to ask anyone if you're discussing salvation. Maybe you're talking to someone, maybe a friend, maybe a neighbor, maybe you're witnessing to someone. What makes you right with God? Ask that question. The question of salvation is not, do you believe the Westminster Confession? Are you a member of a church? Are you a good person? None of those questions, not that, not that none of those questions are important, but they don't get down to the issue. The question you need to ask to determine if someone really knows Christ, do you trust Jesus solely and fully for your salvation? period? Or is it Jesus plus something? Jesus plus the best I can do. Jesus plus commitment and baptism into a church and a religion. Jesus plus, if the answer is Jesus plus anything, there's not a full gospel acceptance. Because the mystery, <laughs> it's something that still overwhelms me every time I think about it is that God's salvation comes to me on no merit of my own. And until I come to the place of accepting that fully, there are things there that, that must go. I could put it like this. Regarding one's salvation, the question isn't what are you doing? It's who are you trusting? That makes the next question in people's mind, well, who are those who were really saved? or not saved, and who is Paul talking about? Are these people who are really saved and lost it? Are these people who pretended they're saved and didn't have it and then could never get it? And I'm going to give you a very profound answer. I don't know. And at the end of the day, I don't think the, the answer to that question is as important to the ultimate outcome. I'll give you my opinions, though. 
In verses four and five, he describes the people he's talking about. And he gives us five descriptors. Those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of the powers of the age to come. So five things that these people partook in or experienced. Number one, he says that they've been enlightened. The word here means to bring illumination through teaching or instruction, specifically and mostly translated to the mind. In some passages, it's translated uh, instruction or to teach, to be taught. So whatever, whoever these people are, they have, there was a point where they had received the knowledge of Christ into their minds. They have been taught the gospel. They have been enlightened into the reality of who Jesus was and why he came. It wasn't a lack of knowledge. They knew. Now, whether or not they fully received or believed is, is questionable. Then it says that, they, that uh, they tasted the heavenly gift. And again, uh, argument over words, semantics. Does taste mean to sample, or does it mean to consume and swallow and eat and fully? Well, it's translated both ways in the Bible. Jesus, the Bible says in Hebrews, tasted death for everyone. Certainly he wasn't sampling it. Like he fully partook of it. But in other places, especially in, in even um, secular Greek texts, we get the idea that, that sample means to partake of but not fully consume. You, some people might say that they, they flirted with the spiritual things, but they never married Christ in the sense of becoming his bride. They rolled the heavenly gift around in their mouth, Jesus being the heavenly gift, so to speak. And oh, I'm thinking about it. I'm considering it. I've, I can taste it, but haven't fully consumed. Then we're told that they were partakers of the Holy Spirit. Again, does partake mean to be fully immersed in, filled with, and sealed with the Holy Spirit? Or does it mean your car got wet because you parked next to, the, next to the car wash, but you didn't go through it, you know? By osmosis or by receiving? Did, are these people who partook of the Holy Spirit in the sense that they were around the work of the Holy Spirit and they sensed his working, but never received him into their lives? We're told that they tasted the good word of God. In other words, they, they benefited from God's word. They heard it. And they said, oh, that's interesting. That's, that's worth thinking about. They tasted the power of the age to come. In other words, they were privy to and partakers of the work of the kingdom of Christ. They saw and witnessed the Holy Spirit heal the sick and raise the dead and cast out demons. And yet remember what Jesus says at the final judgment to certain people who said, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? And Jesus looks at them and says, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. So apparently you can partake of spiritual things, even kingdom power, and still be on the fence about Jesus and his place in your life. Imagine the college football recruiting process, which I know nothing about. Nick Saban of Alabama, you know, he's, him and his team are scouting out the country, and they're looking at all the high school talent, the fresh talent. They invite a certain group to junior week, and there they court them. 
and they take them into the locker room and they let them do a little workout with the team and they take them onto the field and they get to throw the ball around on the, on, on the actual field of the stadium of the college. And then they visit their home and they talk to their parents and they convince the family why this is the best route for you to partake in. This is, this is what we're going to offer you. This is what we're gonna, we, we got a sweatshirt, you got a hat. My friend, you are not part of the team until you sign the agreement, <laughs> until you make the deal. You can partake, you can taste, you can go, you can be, you can look the part, you can play the part, but until you sign that deal, you're not part of the team. And my personal belief is that there within the audience, the Hebrew audience that the author is writing to, whoever that might be, were Jews and Christians There were people considering moving to Jesus. There were people confessing Jesus that in their heart had not fully received Jesus. And there were Christians. And from the surface, you couldn't just tell who they were just by looking at them. But Paul recognized, regardless of the matter, there's word coming. That some of you are saying we should go back to Judaism. Some of you are suggesting that, this, that it can be Jesus plus circumcision and Jesus plus the sacrifices and Jesus plus the temple and Jesus plus the high priest. And regardless of who you are in this group, I just want you to know, Paul would say, that you're on a very difficult road and potentially about to fall off. And whether or not these are saved people who lost it or unsaved people who faked it, in my opinion, is not the point. No one can snatch them out of my hands, Jesus said. Well, yeah, but can you walk out? Paul says, you've been sealed by the Holy Spirit until the day of redemption. And then the Bible also says, you you inherit the promise if you remain steadfast in the faith. Christ is faithful to sanctify you, body, soul, and spirit, until the day of salvation. The Bible is clear. But then he says, keep yourself in the love of God. Which is it? And I don't want to make excuses for things I don't know. But for me, when I read this as a Christian, I say, I don't care. I just want to make sure I'm in Jesus. That's what I want. And if that's what you want, it's because God's calling you. And if you're concerned about your state state between you and God, and you're concerned about pleasing God, and you're concerned about being saved, and you're concerned about being forgiven of your sin, don't worry about the the, the theological nuances. Respond to God. Respond to his call to be right and made whole and forgiven through Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. And then stick with him until the end. Don't turn to the right. Don't turn to the left. Don't get caught up in every wind and wave of doctrine. Don't get so infatuated with, well, you know, I know this guy says this isn't really biblical. And just stick with Jesus until the day you see him face to face. The third description we see here is that they reject the only sufficient sacrifice for their sin. Verse 6 says, if they fall away, it's impossible, back to that initial word, to renew them again to repentance, since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. In other words, either in their rejection of Jesus or their insistence to go back to the sacrificial system of the law, They are mocking. The the literal modern-day translation might be spit in the eye or slap in the face the sacrifice that Jesus made. They say it's not enough. They 
they put themselves in the place of the people that crucified Jesus by rejecting his promise, by having the opportunity and seeing and experiencing and being part of and then turning around and turning away. It's like they put Jesus up on that cross again and again and again and they mock and shame his sacrifice. And before we think that this might be some narrow-minded mean thing that God is doing to not allow them back into repentance, I'd like to suggest this is not something that God does to them. It's something they do to themselves through the hardness, hardening of their own hearts and consciences towards the gospel. I do like the fact that Paul, though, does says if they fall away because he's making a condition. You don't have to fall away. You can make the choice by faith to stick with Jesus. Now, I'm going to suggest something that I only suggest because I believe the passage teaches it. I don't want to discourage anyone or hurt anybody. But he doesn't mix words. He says it's impossible for them to be renewed again to repentance. At least in that state of mind, it's impossible, it's impossible, humanly impossible for them to come back to a place of faith in Christ. If you have a friend, family member, son or daughter that's in this spot, they grew up in church, they know the gospel, they've heard everything, they've experienced the power of God, they've, they've had these moments and they have said, you know what, that's great, but Jesus isn't for me, I'm done. I don't believe your arguments and your attempts to persuade or to force are going to accomplish anything. What do I do, Josh? Get on your knees and pray to the God of the impossible. And in, as Paul said here, if God so wills, he might do something. Yes, you continue to love, you continue to shine, you continue to be the example you need to be, and you pray for God to possibly soften a hardened heart. And in his sovereignty and in his goodness, he will do as he sees fit, but there is a direct warning. It's a familiar story that comes to mind, a parable of Jesus in Luke chapter eight, where Jesus talks about a, Man who sows seed along a path, and he throws the seed as he walks. And we're told that some seed falls by the wayside and is snatched by the birds before it gets implanted into the soil. Some seed falls on rocky ground. It springs up, but it eventually dies from starvation. Some seed falls on thorny ground, and it springs up, but it's choked out by the weeds, which is the cares of the world. And finally, some seed falls on good soil and produces fruit. And I believe when I read Hebrews chapter 6 that the example of the rocky soil, I think, is as closest a picture to this verse as I can put together. That these people initially showed enthusiasm and excitement about the possibility of Jesus, but through pressure and persecution and being choked out, they failed to count the costs of true discipleship and went back to what was safe. Persecution has a way of doing that, you know. Perhaps these were people who were quickly turning from Christ to run back to the law or back to Judaism and were abandoning Christ due to persecution. Remember when Jesus looked at all the people that were following him? Right, he had a thing going. 
His disciples were excited. He's like, they're like, this is it, man. Thousands of people following Jesus. And Jesus looks at him and says, if you want, if you want to take part in me, you, gotta, you have to drink my blood and eat my flesh. And everyone looked at him with these strange looks. And the Bible says in John 6, verse 66, the number 666 having no impact on anything here. From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. What happened? They were impressed by Jesus. They liked the idea of Jesus. But when it came down to Jesus saying, if you want me, you have to have me. My sacrifice, my blood, my body. That's a little too much. They turned around and they walked away. Which leads us to our fourth and final point that he describes is that these, this audience, these people, never bear the fruit of true faith in their life. Verse 7 and 8, For the earth which drinks in the rain that often comes up to it and bears herbs, useful for those by whom it is cultivated, receives blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and briars, it is rejected and near to being cursed, whose end is to be burned. Again, I want you to focus on what happens to the seed once it enters into the soil. Sometimes the only way a farmer would know whether his land was good or not was by planting the seed and seeing what happens after it rains. And here's the thing. Both soils receive the same seed. They both receive the same water. They both drink from the same nutrients. But only one produces good fruit and the other thorns and weeds come out of their life. Now, here's the thing I've learned. Only God knows what's going on beneath the soil. I don't know what's going on beneath the soil. God knows what's going on beneath the soil. But one thing is clear. One path leads to eternal life, and one path leads to apostasy, and the end is destruction. Jesus put it like this in John 15. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. I could sum it up maybe like this, that it's what we do with the rain that matters. If we bear fruit, we'll be eternally blessed. If we bear thorns, we'll be cursed. But our eternal destiny is shaped by how we respond to God. How will you receive the seed of God's word? And I'll be honest with you, the the immediate contrast that came to my mind when I read Hebrews 6 is the contrast between Judas and Peter. Judas and Peter, two disciples of the 12, both chosen by Jesus, both partakers of the kingdom work. Judas cast out demons and healed the sick, so did Peter. But when it came down to it, Judas betrays Jesus. Peter betrays Jesus, doesn't he? When he's challenged, you were with him. No, I wasn't. I don't know the man. He curses Jesus. Judas weeps. Peter weeps. Judas finds no place for repentance and hangs himself. Peter weeps bitterly, repents, and is restored. Sadly, there are people who seem to walk with Jesus, but there's just certain parts of Jesus they don't want, and they never come into a place of full surrender which is why I'm glad he ends with verse nine, this thought, and he'll move into a new thought 
off of this next week. But he says, but beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you. Yes, the things that accompany salvation, though we speak in this manner. The author recognizes, I know I'm speaking in a manner of a stern warning. And it might be frightening for the readers to read about the drastic consequences of turning their back on Christ. But despite the stern and blunt admonishment, there is an expectation that those who hear it are going to take it and respond to Christ as they should and bear the fruit of salvation in their life. And I see the balance here as being this. We must be fully aware of the dire consequences of walking away from Christ while at the same time holding an unwavering confidence in our security as we hold fast to Christ. I know I've said it four or five times. I'll just close with it again. If you want to be sure about your salvation, stick with Jesus. Embrace him and his sacrifice fully by faith, 100%. Nothing of your own to offer. Come to the end of yourself and trust in Christ. I'd like to issue this morning as, uh, as Grayson comes up, as we all enter into an attitude of prayer, we're going to just invite you. If you hear a message like this, you've heard me say, it's not your sin, it's not your failures that, that can get you out of God's hand or God's family. Nothing you can do but you are uncertain in your heart. I, if you sense I am that person that is described in this passage, and maybe no one even knows it because of what I've been playing on the surface, but I have not had that moment of surrender, confession, repentance, belief in Jesus alone for my salvation. I'd like to encourage you to respond to the invitation of Christ today. If you are holding on to Christ, I want you to be able to leave this place with greater confidence and assurance that he will never, ever, ever fail you or let you go. Why don't we pray? Lord, we thank you, God, for your word. I feel very inadequate, a messenger to convey it. But I pray now that that your Holy Spirit would be moving and working among the hearts and lives of those who are here today who might be watching or, or listening to online. Maybe those who have been in a, a mental wrestling match with God. Maybe a theological wrestling match with God. Maybe a, even an academic wrestling match with God. And there's this place in their heart where they, only they and you know, there hasn't been a full fullness of faith to trust you. Lord, you, you, are, you have brought them here today. You have given them opportunity because of your great love for them. Lest their hearts become even so much more hardened to your call and your voice. your invitation into life, the forgiveness of their sin, heaven forever, peace with God. 
If you need Jesus and Jesus alone in your life today, do not hesitate, do not wait. Do not argue yourself out of it. If you sense the pulling and the calling of God in the deepest part of your soul and your mind and your heart, saying, give your life to Christ. Respond in this moment. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. In fact, with every head bowed and eyes are closed, if that is you, and you've been trusting in something else or someone else or your own performance or your own church attendance or whatever it might be, but you've never just had that personal moment of faith and surrender. If that is you, I don't need to convince you anymore, you already know. If that is you, I'm gonna ask you to stand up wherever you're at right now and respond to the call of God upon your life. I know it takes some courage, I know. But I'm gonna ask you, just if that's you, if, even if it's just one person, I'd like you to stand right now and respond to God's invitation. Thank you. Just stay standing. I don't, we're so, so excited for you right now. Anyone else today is answering the call of God? For those of you who are standing, there's no magic words, no magic prayer that gets you in. The Bible says it's the confession of your conscience before God, a clear conscience before God. It's trust, it's faith. And so I would like to lead you just in a moment of, of personal prayer between you and God, that's it. And if you trust by faith that he's listening to you and responding to you, the Bible says if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved, born again, made new. And so church, would you join these that are standing in a prayer to God? Just repeat after me. God, I come before you now. And I confess my need for your forgiveness. I bring nothing to the table of myself. I have no merit. But I receive the gift that you offer me. I believe that you died for the forgiveness of my sin. and that you will save me and give me peace with God. I trust you today. In Jesus' name, amen. Can we give these a hand who made the courage to stand this morning? We love you guys. You can, let's all stand together. And if you stood, I'd, I'd love to meet you. Um, I'll be up here in the front and, and uh, I'd love for you to connect. Um, but God bless you guys today. Let's go out with a song, focusing our eyes and our heart on the sacrifice of Christ, which is by far just the greatest moment that human history has ever experienced or known. God bless you, and uh, we'll see you next time. <laughs>